All right, go ahead and open up to John 21. John 21. Two and a half years later, here we are at the end of the Gospel of John. And what a journey it's been, right? And as we come to the end of the Gospel of John, by now we have firmly established a few pretty core truths. That Jesus is God. That He is God incarnate. That means He is God in the flesh. He has come to us. And because He has come to us, that He is the true promised Messiah. And last week we saw the unfolding of why He came, right? To come to die for the sins of His people. To be raised according to the Scriptures. To bring redemption for those who would trust in Him. And the interesting thing is, is chapter 20 ends extremely beautifully, right? It restates the purpose of the Gospel of John, that hearing we would believe. And it seems to kind of be the natural end of John 20. But it's not, right? Because as we see in the beginning of John chapter 21, we kind of see this added epilogue to the Gospel. And in this added epilogue, what we find is really a final charge. And to declare that final charge, I want to start by reading the first eight verses as part of the introduction that kind of lead us into the end of the book. So John chapter 21, starting in verse 1, we read this. After this... Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, that was the doubter, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John are the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to him, I am going fishing. I like that line. They said to him, We will go with you. I like that line too. And they went out and they got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Now, what you need to understand is this. They had been through a world of emotions at this point. And it would seem as if just a group of guys trying to decompress are just going to go enjoy their time together. Possible. But they were also professional fishermen. This is what they did. This was their career. This was their livelihood, right? So they go out. They catch nothing. Now, I love fishing. And I have recently found my love of fishing. Um, It had kind of disappeared for a little while. But one thing that I enjoy is I enjoy watching professional bass fishermen. There's a craft to what they do that is pretty spectacular. It's a lot different than, you know, like yesterday afternoon, I took my girls and we went fishing, went and got some minnows, just wanted them to experience. And it was not easy fishing. It was hot. It was really not the good part of the day. Fish were not biting. And what it does is it really gives you an appreciation for what these guys are doing, right? Now, what you very rarely see in a professional tournament is guys coming in having caught nothing. Right? They know what they're doing. Even on a hard day, they're going to catch something. They might not catch, catch like a big fish. right? They might not be high up on the leaderboard, but they're going to catch something. And here you have six guys who are professional fishermen. They go fishing and they catch nothing. Right? And about that time, verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast an out on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now, picture this, right? 
I show up to a professional bass tournament, day one, I'm out there on a boat watching like I'm a spectator, because that's how spectators do in bass fishing, right? They get on boats, and they just watch these other guys fish. And when they catch one, they cheer along with them. So imagine I'm sitting by Kevin Van Dam, right? Probably means nothing to you. He's like the godfather of bass fishing. And he's not catching a thing. So I shout over to Kevin, hey, Kevin, you need to switch baits and you need to cast on the other side of the boat. That would be ludicrous. And in essence, that's what's taking place. They're telling, like this guy on the shore is telling these professional fishermen, like you need to do this because whatever you're doing is not working. Oddly enough, they listen. They cast to the other side. Verse 6. Check that. Further down. I lost my place. Verse 7. Nope. It was 6. Halfway through 6. Thank you. Halfway through 6. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, John, therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. Gotta love Peter. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. And this is kind of like leading into the final charge, right? The last leg of the race of the Gospel of John. And in essence, what we see is really this summation, or what we will see in the next few verses. Like we know who Jesus is, right? We, we have clearly seen that through the first 20 chapters of the Gospel of John. We know what he's done. Now, what do we do with that? What do we do with the great truths that we have established of who Jesus is and what he has done? Because we have established some pretty foundational, life-altering truths at this point. He's not just some man. He's not just some good teacher. He's not just another prophet. He is God. And he's God in the flesh. And he has come to save his people. And that question of now what is really a question for all of us, isn't it? Now what? What do we do? We've heard the good news. We're a week post-Easter. We have just celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. Now what? Which is why chapter 21 is so foundational. And as we work through the rest of chapter 21, here's what I want you to think about. That true disciples of Jesus will follow him no matter the cost. Because he is both Lord and Savior. He is both God and Messiah. He is both King and Christ. And before we go into the rest, I want to, to just pray for us. And I want to pray that God would speak to us through his word. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come now to this last chapter, the Gospel of John. May all that we've heard, all that we've learned now lead us in this final charge to show us clearly what it is we are to do with this good news. That we will not see, be simply people who hear good news and just hold it in. But that we will follow. No matter the cost. No matter where the truth of being your disciple leads us. No matter the struggles it may lead us to face. No matter the loss it may lead us to lose. No matter the persecution it may bring into our lives. But that we would follow you because you are worthy. And as we work through the rest of this text this morning, Father, may you speak through your word. Your word is beautiful. 
It is inerrant. Has no error. It is inspired by you. And it's all sufficient for all of life. So may we hear this message this morning and may it take root down deep within the very fabric of who we are so that we cannot leave this place the same way. That we would be radically transformed, as Paul writes, through the renewing of our mind by the hearing of the gospel so that we will live lives of sacrificial worship to the glory of your name. That we will realize that the same old, same old, the status quo of everyday life is no longer acceptable. Because you are great and you are greatly to be praised. So as we work through this passage this morning, Father, may you speak through the words of your spirit, through the word written before us. each and every one of our hearts. God, we know that you know everyone that's here. You know our hearts. You know our lives. You know what we're going through. And remind us through your word this morning that no matter our story, no matter our struggles, no matter our pains, no matter what we're going through, Your word is sufficient for each and every one of us. So may our eyes be lifted to see you for who you are. Glorious, majestic, holy, righteous. And to see how great a love that you have shown to us in Jesus so that our lives are forever changed. So may you be with us. May you bless the reading of your word and may you change our lives for the glory of your name. It's in Jesus we pray, amen. So as we now have gotten past the first eight verses, that kind of introduction to this final charge We come to verse 9, and we see the very first part of this final charge. It's that Jesus provides. Verses 9 and following. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so would the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Most of us have heard and probably even used the phrase, the Lord will provide. And what we see in these verses is a glimpse of that truth. That Jesus provides. In this instant, he provided a catch. He provided fish. And he took that fish and he prepares breakfast for them. He prepares this meal for them. Now, most of us are probably thinking, like, fish for breakfast? Eh. But culturally, this was was the norm. These were guys who made their living this way. This was typical. And so Jesus prepares breakfast for them. Likewise, Jesus had prepared them for this very day. He had foretold his death. He had spent hours with them, days, years, teaching them who he was, what he was about, what was going to happen. For the last several months, we've been looking at the last several chapters of John, looking at the farewell discourse, these last few hours that Jesus has with his disciples. 
And in telling them that he's leaving, they're distraught, they're broken because they've given up everything to follow this man. And now he's leaving. And to encourage them, he shares with them some good news. That he would send a helper. He's not leaving them alone. He's leaving them with a great helper. And so Jesus provides that. And that helper, the promise of that helper, the Holy Spirit, is that he would guide them and he would enable them to fulfill the mission of God. And that's the very same message for us, that the helper, the Holy Spirit, will guide us and enable us to fulfill the mission of God. Jesus provides the help they need. He provides the help we need to pursue him for the rest of our days. And throughout the ministry of Jesus, we see him make provision for his people time and time and time again. In the Old Testament, we see several examples. One of this is simply Abraham. And you're probably thinking, wait a minute, you're talking about Jesus, Old Testament? Yes, Jesus was God. So he's there in the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament is pointing towards Jesus. Like Sally Lloyd-Jones says in the Jesus Story Bible, every story whispers his name. God calls Abraham out of the land of Ur to go to a place he doesn't know and that he will become a great nation. That's, I heard this, this it was pretty interesting. It was kind of a, a little bit of a joke, but it was saying it's kind of a miracle within a miracle that it would actually happen because how many men do you know that say, tell their wives, we're going to go somewhere. And the question obviously is where we're going to go. And you say, I don't know, we'll figure it out when we get there. That's not flying, right? In most scenarios, especially not living, right? And not, not you're going on vacation, but like, hey, we're picking up everything we have and we're going to a new land. Where? We'll figure it out when we get there. But God calls Abraham and he goes. And in the midst of all of that, God promises Abraham that he will have a son. And Isaac comes and he's promised that Isaac will be the father of that. He will, that Isaac will be the offspring that leads into many nations, that through Isaac, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then out of nowhere, God tells Abraham, all right, Abraham, um, now I want you to take Isaac and I want you to take him to the mount where I sh- will show you and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. And so you can imagine the confusion with Abraham. Like, wait a minute, you just told me that, that I would have a son, even though I'm old. We laughed about it. You actually provided that. Now you want me to go kill him. And the faith of Abraham is absolutely amazing because literally the next day they get up and Isaac with him. Isaac, a strong young man, carries the burden of the wood on his back and they make their journey and they're going up the mountain And they prepare an altar, and Isaac willingly lays himself down, even at this point, knowing what is about to happen. And he asks even his father, God, Abraham, Dad, when we're forgetting something pretty important here. Um, And Abraham tells him, the Lord provide. And as Isaac lays there, and as Abraham is prepared to sacrifice his son, he's halted. And the Lord provided a sacrifice. We also see it with the nation of Israel as they're in shambles. God provides through the law and not as a means of burden for them, but a means of life to help steer them and and corral them and protect them. We see it as the nation of Israel is wandering lost. God provides direction. As they're hungry, as they're wasting away, God provides manna from heaven. In the New Testament, we see Jesus at the wedding of Cana turn water into wine to serve his friends and his guests. We see Jesus heal the sick, heal the lame, provide sight to the blind. He feeds 5,000 in one instance. He feeds 4,000 in another. Time and time again, Jesus is providing simply out of grace, pointing to his greatness. And the question really becomes, so what do we gather from this? What do we get from the fact that Jesus is a provider? That Jesus will make provision for his people as we live on mission. Now, 
the important thing to note is it's not always going to be physical provision. It's not always going to be that he provides food, that he provides housing, that he provides money, that he, you know, in some cases he does, but that's not what we're seeing here. The point is that we need to see is that Jesus provides for the spiritual leading of his people. I mean, it would be ludicrous to say that he provides physically and financially and whatever for his people when we see Christians all over the world being slain daily. Just last Sunday on Easter Sunday, we saw churches bombed. But here's the promise that Scripture makes. that He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. That there is no one that can snatch us out of his hand. That's not talking about physical means of provision. That's talking about a spiritual means that once our soul has been committed to Christ, once we have trusted Jesus with everything we have, we are his, period. And one day we will stand before our great king and all the troubles we face, all the struggles we face. We will see our glorious Redeemer and we will know it is worth it. Jesus provides. And as he leads them in this final charge, we're reminded that he does give the Holy Spirit to them. And what we see is that Christians have been given the Holy Spirit to provide a spiritual foundation for life. You can't live life as a Christian without knowing Jesus. You can try, right? You can fit a good mold. You can be a good old boy or a good old girl, and, and you can do the right things and avoid the wrong things, and, and you can check boxes, right? We can go to church, and, and we can say we love the Lord, and we can do all these things, but in, unless we fully surrender our lives to Christ, we're not His, and sadly, we will stand before God one day. This is real, right? This is not just made up stuff. This is in the word of God. And we have more than established that this is the word of God. And it is true. It's without error. We will stand before God and we will give an account. And there are going to be many who stand before Jesus on that day. Who thought they had played the game well. Who thought they had covered all of their bases. Who are going to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Because they had never truly surrendered to the saving grace of Christ. But for those who do, we have been given the Holy Spirit to lead us on the mission that God has called us to live. And we can't do it alone. I've, you most of you know this, that I have a great affinity for Charles Spurgeon, the British pastor from the mid-19th century. He's called the Prince of Preachers, and yet every time he made his ascent to the pulpit, it was actually an elevated pulpit, so imagine he's preaching to 5,000 people, right? No, no, he doesn't have one of these, right? And so he's thundering his voice, and so what they would do is they would design... Um, their churches in such a way to help project that voice. And one of the, the means of that is the, the, the pulpit would be elevated. So he would have to climb stairs into this pulpit. He was afraid of heights. He was only 15 foot high, but he was afraid of heights. And, and he's, it's been well documented that every time he would approach that pulpit, he was terrified, but he was not as terrified about the heights as much as he was terrified about preaching the word of God to people, knowing that their souls were on the line. And he would pray every step, I need the Holy Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit. We see it in the ministry of Jesus. He was led by the Spirit of God to come face to face with Satan. And we've been given the Holy Spirit as a foundation for our life. And what we see here in this instance is as Jesus gives instruction for them to cast their net to the other side, so will the Holy Spirit lead us to the way of a great catch, and that's the building of the kingdom of God. They were catching nothing on their own power. Jesus tells them, throw your net to the other side, and they haul in this massive amount of fish. 
if we try to do life on our own, we can't do it. I mean, I hope you get that. Understand that. If you try to live the Christian life without Christ, it's not possible. The only way it's possible is to fully surrender to Him and be led by the Holy Spirit every moment of every day. And God will build His church. He makes that promise. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. People can bomb us. People can shoot us. People can persecute. People can take away freedoms. But it will not stop Jesus from building his church. And partly, it's because he has given his spirit to live within his people. And we are not afraid of all of those other things. And we will not be moved by all of those things. We will not be stopped by all of those things. Because we have the power of God living within us. But I want you to notice another provision here. Not only that he provides the fish to them physically and that he provides the Holy Spirit to us spiritually. But I want you to look back at verse 9. At what seems to be a very insignificant verse. We read, and when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. There are only two mentions of a charcoal fire in all of the New Testament. Here and in John chapter 18. And in case you don't remember John 18, I want you to flip back to John 18. To verse 15. I like hearing that, by the way. Page is turning. It does my soul good. Verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus. So did another disciple, John. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and they brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers, see this, had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Two times in all of the New Testament we see reference to a charcoal fire. Peter denying Jesus And Peter being reconciled by Jesus. Despite Peter's rejection of Jesus, despite Peter's flaws, Jesus never stopped pursuing him. In John 10, we read about the good shepherd. The good shepherd loses none of his sheep. So what do we see for us? That Jesus has provided the greatest gift of all, salvation. No matter our flaws, no matter our failures, Jesus pursues us. And he gives his life to save us from our sin. And in saving us, he also gives us another great provision in the Holy Spirit. So that we can live the life he has set us apart to live. To do the things he has called us to do. We see people doing absolutely outrageous things in the name of the Lord all the time. And I mean outrageous in a good way. There are people who do outrageous things in a bad way. And those people will give an account for that. But there are many people who do outrageous things for the good of the Lord. They can only do that because they're being led by God through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why not us? Why can't we be the people who do outrageous things for the Lord? It's not that we don't have the tools. God has given us all we need to accomplish all he wants to accomplish in us at this very moment. Are we willing to receive the provision of the Lord? But not only is Jesus a provider, but we see, starting in verse 15, that Jesus restores See, the charcoal fire was only part of the restoration process for Peter. Look at verses 15 and following. 
And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, feed my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, said to him, tend my sheep. 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus asked Peter this repetitive set of questions. Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? What's he saying? Peter, do you love me more than these other men love me? Do you love me more than you love everything else? Peter denied Jesus earlier because he was more afraid of people than he was in all of his God. And now Jesus is asking Peter, Peter, do you love me more than all other things? Do you love me more than you love your life itself? Do you love me more than you love your brothers? Do you love me more than you love ministry? Do you love me more than you love your profession? Do you love me more than all other things? And each time Peter responds, yes. Until the third time, and it seems that Peter is actually, says he's grieved, like he's kind of bothered by this point. Like, so he responds, of course, you know all things. You know that I love you. Three times Jesus asks Peter if he loves him, and three times Peter responds, affirming his love for Jesus. But what I want you to see is the gracious and restorative work of Jesus here. The charcoal, part of the restorative work, reminds us of another time that a coal was used. Flip to Isaiah chapter 6. As you're turning there, quick history. Isaiah, called by God to be a prophet, to be a proclaimer of the word, a preacher, They're living in pretty good times. They're under a king who's not a Christian. He's not a follower of God, but he respects the people of God. And he allows the people of God to do what they do, to practice their religion freely, to, to live the way that they have been set apart to do. But the problem is, is they know that the successor to that king is an evil guy who is not going to allow all these things to happen. In fact, they know that if... King Uzziah does, in fact, die, or if he's overtaken, that the king who would take his place could very well take their lives. And in the first five chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah is like preaching like thunder. Like, woe is you, woe is you, woe is you. You need to quit doing this. You need to do this. You need to not do this. Woe is you. And then everything changes. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, let me stop there. Their greatest fear had come reality. Uzziah was gone. The next king was taken over. Life as they knew it was changing radically. All their freedoms gone. Their lives probably about to be taken. The nation is in distress and in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. 
For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So what in the world just happened? Everything is falling apart, and God graciously allows Isaiah, his preacher, to see what is coming, what the future truly holds. It's not the wicked king who is going to be ruling, it's King Jesus. And he's sitting on the throne and he's arrayed in all of his splendor and all of his majesty. And he has these angels on either side of this throne room and they're shouting to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at that moment, the foundations of the threshold shake at the voice of him who called. And in seeing the holiness of God, Isaiah's life is changed. And his message goes from woe is you to woe is me. A preacher. And he says, I'm I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then notice what happens. Then one of the seraphim, verse 6, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, That he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God gives Isaiah a vision of the Messiah being the one who atones for the sin of his people. And he uses a coal. And here we see a reference to this same type of coal. Earlier, Jesus had denied, Peter had denied Jesus three times. And now Jesus provides an opportunity for Peter to affirm his love in the very same way. How gracious is our Lord. So what does this mean? It is Jesus and Jesus alone that can atone for our sin and restore us to right standing before God. It's not our work. It's not our effort. It's not our church attendance. It's not our goodness. It's not our giving. It's none of that. The only thing that can restore us to right standing before God is Jesus. Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve had sinned, we know that all had sinned because of one man's sin. We're cursed, Romans 3. And the result of that curse is death. But God in His mercy, His riches and kindness has sent Jesus, God in the flesh, to become the curse for us. And yes, the curse of sin is death, and the reality of sin is death, and the penalty of sin is death. And God did not exclude death. He poured death out on His Son so that we could be set free from the bonds of sin and shame. How gracious our King. And it's only by Jesus, trusting in His work alone, that we can be restored to right standing before a holy God. We see so often our sin as so small because we do not see how majestic God truly is. And after all of this, Peter is graciously restored by the work of Christ. But that's not all we see in this final charge. We're not only seeing that Jesus provides for his people, we're not only seeing that Jesus restores his people, but we also see that Jesus leads his people. Throughout this restorative process, we see another reference 
repeated to tending sheep. Look at that. Verse, go back. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus said, what? Feed my lambs. He said to them a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So the truth is this, that Jesus restores, right? But why does Jesus restore us? Why did Jesus restore Peter? Why does Jesus restore us when we have... There's no reason to restore us. There is nothing good within us. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. There's nothing within us worthy of being restored. So why does Jesus restore us? For us, the redeemed, to follow him, to feed his sheep, to live for his glory above all other things. And Jesus turns to Peter and he says, all right, Peter, follow me. There's a lot of weight to that. And Peter does. Now, I want you to see again the imagery. Like We think of shepherding being this way, that a, a shepherd would use means to drive sheep. Other people, horses, sheep. Dogs, whatever, to drive sheep in the direction they want them to go. And Middle Eastern shepherding in this part of the world at this time, shepherding was completely different. The shepherd would go and the sheep would follow willingly because they loved, they trusted their shepherd. And Jesus tells Peter after he has restored him, all right, follow me. And Peter does. And they begin to walk. Look at verses 18 and 19. And Jesus tells Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And he says, follow me. Jesus just tells Peter how he's going to die. The man who two chapters earlier rejects Jesus because he's afraid for his life is now being told after he's restored, all right, by the way, this is how you're going to die. And church history tells us exactly how Peter dies. After being a preacher, leading the charge in preaching the word, seeing souls saved, Peter is brought in to be crucified, just like his Lord. And where before he fled, this time he doesn't. In fact, he tells them, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. And church history tells us that Peter was crucified upside down. So when Jesus tells Peter, follow me, Peter at first is thinking, okay, we're going to take a walk on the beach. And then he hears this message realizing this call to follow is much deeper than that. We have been set apart and redeemed by God to follow him even unto death. Folks, we are called to die to self daily for the cause of Christ. He doesn't just save us for a walk on the beach. He saves us so that we could follow Him no matter the cost. No matter the cost. That's why Paul could write in Galatians 2.20, For I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who came and gave himself for me. 
We should be dead men and women walking. Notice what happens in verses 20 through 23. Peter, the saga continues, right? Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, following them. The one who had also leaned back against him during supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And so the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say that, say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Peter had been restored. He had been reconciled to God. His sins had been atoned for. He's forgiven. But he's not perfect. He's still flawed. He's Peter. The one who always spoke too quickly. The one who always seemed to get himself into the most precarious situations. He's been redeemed, but he's not perfect. How true of that is that for us? The reality is, guys, that we will make many mistakes in our walk with Jesus, but the good shepherd always leads his sheep faithfully. And I don't know your story. Some of you I do, but I don't, I don't know all of your stories. Maybe you're not a Christian because you've been struggling with this reality. If I follow Jesus, I've got to be perfect. No. Or maybe you're thinking, I can't get saved until I get my junk together. That's not possible. Jesus has restored Peter. He has saved Peter, but Peter is still a man who messes up. The reality is, is when Jesus saves us, we're still going to fight the temptation of sin every day. Which is why we hear that we are to run the race with endurance that is set before us. Laying aside every weight and sin which holds us back. We don't just come to Christ and then live how we want. We come to Christ and pursue Him daily. He's worthy. He has redeemed us. And He will lead us home. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pasture. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, not ours. He doesn't save us for us. He doesn't save us so we can get our fire insurance and then live however we so choose to live. We are saved by him for him. Psalm 23 continues, For even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The shepherd leads his sheep. They follow because they trust. They follow because they know they're cared for and they're loved. But the shepherd still carries a crook. To gently pull them back to safety. To fight off any potential harm. He cares for his sheep deeply. And so knowing all of this about Jesus. And seeing his grace on perfect display. In his life, his ministry, his death his resurrection, and his restoration of his people. The question for us is, how will we respond to him? 
He doesn't simply call Peter to follow. He calls us all to follow. Even unto death. What do we do with the truths of the Gospel of John that show us that Jesus is very God, a very God, that He is the only means of salvation, and He's worthy to be praised? And He calls us to follow Him no matter the cost. What do we do with that? Are we willing to follow Him no matter the cost? Are we willing to forsake the things we say we love? Are we willing to be uncomfortable? Are we willing to cast aside every weight and hindrance? Are we willing to potentially lose friends for the call of the gospel? Are we willing to potentially lose our jobs? Are we willing to potentially lose our lives in pursuit of the glories of God? Verses 24 and 25. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Why? Because he was an eyewitness of all the things he wrote. And he put pen to paper during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses of Jesus. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. I love this. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So I want to close the Gospel of John, and I want to leave you with this. In light of the glories of Jesus, who has more than proven his love, his goodness, and his grace towards us, may we follow passionately and humbly to the glory of his name. Let's pray. Our Father, as Paul cried out in Romans, oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. May we see and may we savor our Savior. May our lives be laid down at your feet to be redeemed, to be restored, and to be led for the cause of you and your glory. And let every other thing fade. May we trust you today. In Jesus' great name we pray.